Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 83. Today's guest is Satyam Kantameni. Satyam Kantameni is the founder and chief experience officer of UX Reactor. UX Reactor is the fastest growing specialized design firm in the United States, located in Silicon Valley, California. Satyam is also the author of User Experience Design, a practical playbook to fuel business growth. Satyam has such an impressive resume. He's a graduate of Harvard Business School. He studied design thinking at Stanford University. Such a brilliant guy. He and I discuss what he learned growing up in a military family. His dad was an officer in the Indian Army. We also discuss the guiding principles Satyam uses as the foundation of UX Reactor and the life lessons he learned working door-to-door sales in India. It is a great conversation with a leader on the top of his game. Satyam shares so many pearls of wisdom, leadership, and creative thought. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button. We have a bunch of awesome interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Satyam Kantameni. And remember, life is built, not born. Satyam Kantameni, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you for joining us. Satyam, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I would say I'm an engineer by choice a designer by profession, and I live here in the Silicon Valley and the San Francisco Bay Area. Fortunately, I have the privilege of running the fastest growing user experience design firm in the country for three years in a row. So that's kind of who I am. I originally was born and brought up in India, came here for my graduate education to America, and loved the education system, loved the overall energy, and then decided to call this my home. Been here in America now for a little over two decades now. I want to get into your company being the fastest growing in your sector out in Silicon Valley, your immigrant story, coming over from India, growing up in a military family, bringing some of the mindset you had growing up, bringing it to your business, your door-to-door sales Uh, That was a career, but your experience in India going door to door, the challenges you learned and how to be such a great learning experience. Also too, a couple things about your mindset, about the cost of experimentation being very low and how you failed most of your classes. (laughs) (laughs) But before we do that, I'd like to go back, if we can, all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up, as you mentioned, in a military family. My father was an an officer in the Indian Army. And like most militaries in the modern world, the officers get posted or get stationed at different centers in India. So I traveled across the country. I lived no more than three, three and a half years in a certain area, moved at least eight times in my 12 years or, or my till my 12th grade. So it was a fascinating experience. So I've lived in Northern India, Southern India, East India, West India. So being across, I can speak different languages. I understand different cultures. So that's been my exposure growing up as a young kid in India. Wow. What? How many languages do you speak? I. It's been off and on. I can speak about, I can understand about six. I can speak about three very fluently. 
Wow, that that is quite impressive. How about I find like 10 to 12 years old, like a very formative time in people's lives. And I find the dinner table a very like a microcosm of their life, like the main players of their life at that time. If you could think back to like 10, 12 years old when you were living in India, who was at the dinner table? What was going on? Could you describe that scene? On an average night, it was a family dinner. But like my father, my mom, and my brother, who's also my co-founder in this firm. So we were, you know, a nuclear family. But most nights, I would say at least a couple of nights every week, we had someone over because my father was an, as I mentioned, he was in a military cantonment and which is like a fort in American context. And you're living, and there's always new officers, new state, you know, station ends coming in, coming out. So we always had guests. It was very interesting because you always knew every station brought new friendships, new relationships. So growing around a lot of new people that you keep seeing off and on was always a part of the journey. But traditionally, again, it was a dinner table was in us for, you know, wrapping up a day and finishing up before we kind of took off to get rest and, and ready for the next day. When you look back at that time, who was your biggest influence as a kid? Who did you look up to? There was no single individual I looked up to. I looked up to the system that was the military, just how disciplined folks were, the respect, the rigor, the d- discipline that uh, people had all, all together it was just fascinating. And it was a system that everybody was bought onto. Everybody understood it. Everybody respected it. There was a lot of honor. People discussed it as if there was no other way around it. For me, that was what really stood out. And uh, and growing up, obviously, I, I used to read a lot of. I'm fascinated by Second World War, so I, mm-hmm. I've read a lot of books. I I always watch every movie that has come out, and you kind of see what a few group of people have been able to do and achieve with their sheer tenacity and perseverance. And so that's kind of what stood out to me because that's what you would literally was. Um, the ethos was very similar. In fact, a lot, lot of Westerners don't un- really appreciate or understand that, you know, the Indian army to, under the British uh, Royal Army at that point was the largest non-volunteer, sorry, largest voluntary non-European army. They had a million people in there in the Second World War and the First World War. So a lot of Indian soldiers and regiments actually had a big part of in that service. And and that's what, you know, was passed on and that ethos and that structure is what remained. I think for me, the role model was always all the officers who wore the uniform. And I always wanted to wear it myself. And unfortunately, I couldn't because I was medically unfit being colorblind. Uh, And uh, so because of which, you know, I was medically rejected and therefore I decided a different career path. What did that feel like? So you wanted to go into the military. And did you know you were colorblind going into the the physical or was that that new to you? I I knew I I had issues, but I didn't realize that it was rejection based. So the Indian military, unfortunately, has a strict rule that you cannot be an officer if you are any even colorblind, any level. So it was an outright permanent rejection. So that was the shift because I was all through my, till high school, I was like prepping to, in fact, I joined the equivalent of an ROTC. I actually used to shoot in uh, my competitively and uh, I stood in my juniors level, I stood first all all India and, and was a gold medalist in shooting. So I prepped all my life to join the services. And then I was colorblind and decided that, you know, I had to pivot as the first pivot in life and then decided that, you know, I had to change somewhere else and I got a degree in engineering of that point. wow when they told you you're colorblind and not only is it a condition it's rejection and there's no way around it what did you feel i think there were two parts um uh, first is obviously in it uh 
it breaks a certain level of mindset that you have. Like I, I'd always assume that I will join the services, at least in the Indian Army, which I think is very true with the um, with most Western armies. So my father commanded a regiment, and if I became an officer, I, I there's something called parental claim that you can actually request to be commissioned in the same regiment that your dad commanded. And so there's an element and there's, I know officers who are in the third or fourth generation and and being in officers in the services. And, and I think that I, I strongly holds true for the, even the US military. So for me, again, that was the first reaction. Okay, now this is not what it is. For the longest while, I always used to look at a civilian and not good enough. And then I suddenly had to kind of recoup and understand, oh, now I will be a civilian myself, which was another mindset shift that had to happen. The doctor, actually, when we went to a private doctor, he actually said something even more profound. And he said, oh, I don't think your son's going to be good for any technical job. So which was even more interesting because like, oh, okay, so now I'm not going to do any technical job. Now, what does that mean? And but fortunately, I still went to engineering and still completed it, right? I didn't understand my colors, but your brain kind of works. It's smart enough that will work your way around. So I think obviously it was a big shift. It was something that I had to take as a hit. And uh, I could see friends of mine who would join the services and were in the academy and so on. And their stories were always someone else's stories, not yours. So again, yeah, you realize that it was not meant to be and there's nothing you can do. So you move on. Yeah. Before we move on, World War II is definitely a, an interest and a fascination of mine. Both of my grandparents served in World War II. My mom's dad served in the U.S. Army Infantry in Europe. And then my dad's dad served as a medic in the Pacific. Anyway, so definitely an interest of mine. Just real quick, not to get too sidetracked. All right, what's your favorite World War II movie? I have a few. The Great Escape, there's quite a few, I would say. And The Guns of Navarone was one more that I actually grew up watching. Again, there's so many. So many. And Saving Private Ryan, the yeah. more, in a more recent time. I think there are just so many. I, I, there's, that's there's so many. And then how about book-wise? There's so many great books. What's your favorite book on World War II? So I actually have a very well-illustrated book on it's World War II in color. I found this in an old bookshop in, uh, when I was traveling in London. And uh, I don't know who the author is, but it's actually got color photos. So I think that's been a great one. Books-wise, there's actually an awesome book on the Africa campaign. And on, uh, it's actually more of an autobiography on General Rommel. So that's actually yeah. a really good one. So I think those are the ones. I'm not a big book reader. I do collect a lot of the coffee table books, but I do listen to the history and I watch every documentary possible. Let's move on. So you walked into an exam room to go into the military to get your physical you come out knowing that you're colorblind and that career that you wanted your whole life is no longer an option. So as you walked out of that room, if someone asked the 18-year-old version of you what you wanted to do when you grew up, what would you have told them? What I would say is on the highest level, it was just refactoring everything. Again, I strongly believe in the process of the five stages of grief. And you have to go through the all the stages, and I, you know there's always something for everyone. And I would just have probably gone back and said. So at that point, I felt like the world had come to an end. What would I do? Everything I'd planned for has kind of failed. But again, if I was to kind of go meet that person today, I would probably say, hey, there's always something better around the corner. They just life is too big and it's just too dynamic to kind of give up on one item. Let's fast forward a little bit here. How did you find your way to Silicon Valley in the United States? So I got into engineering and uh, so got a degree in electronics and communication engineering. So in the four years I was there, as I become a reluctant engineer, because that was not my first choice. And uh, because it was not the first choice, I kind of just kept going on with it. 
and I write six papers every semester and then fail three of them. The next semester, I had six more and, and I had three from the last. So uh, it was actually, I, I call myself one and a half engineer because I had to repeat 50% of my papers. And <laughs> uh, But long story short, I did graduate and I did graduate in four years, which itself was seemed kind of impossible at that point. And, uh, and I went to a really good school. It was a top 100 school in uh, India. So I was studying with very highly academically oriented classmates, but but I was not measuring up by any means. So it was a big experience. But then I fortunate enough to graduate. I realized that I would not become a good electronics engineer. Somebody said, here, put a gun to my head and say, design a chipset. I would say, shoot me. I just can't. And But then I realized that, hey, what is it that I get excited by? Excited by engaging with other humans, working, collaborating with them, problem solving with them. So I was fortunate enough to have found a program in my master's degree. So I had graduated with, I think, 2.25 GPA in my undergrad. And so I, I was surprised that even a grad school gave me an admission, but one did. Now, Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, give me an admit, but it was in a program called Human Factors Engineering. It's how humans interact with technology. But the secret sauce was right Pat Air Force Base was right next to Wright State University okay. and was funding a lot of research at, at the university. And I was fortunate enough to work on one of those projects. And I was working at that point how humans interacted in complex environments with unmanned aerial vehicles. This was before 9-11 and before the war on terror started. So there was a lot of unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs at that point or drones as we call them today were not a big thing. But then how do humans interact with it, how they operate it was a big part of the research. And for me, given my interest in the military yeah. and the in interest in working at technology, which what I had built a base and studying in engineering was fascinating. It, all the dots connected. And then I was like fish to water. I completed my master's in less than 12 months. I had three internships lined up. I had funding all through my program, I had a journal paper. So it, well, I was doing really well. I graduated, I think, 3.75 in GPA in my grad program. And it's fascinating. I think, again, it's, it's just two educational systems, one with the right environment one and one with the right interest. That's the big shift I saw. And I kept to that line of work for the next 20 years. And I've, I still continue to understand how humans interact with systems. And I call it now user experience design, or okay. that's what the profession is called. So I've kept to that line of work, not in the military side, but again, in complex problems. And, and that's how my journey kind of evolved. So from there, I, once I graduated, I got a great internship with a big German conglomerate called Siemens. And from Siemens, I ended up at a few other places before PayPal relocated me to the Bay Area. And, and I came to the Bay Area, I spent 10 years working for PayPal. And, and leading design for another company and then finally decided that I want to try to do it my way and build Bix Reactor. Very cool. No, thank you for sharing that question. You mentioned a few moments ago that you might have had a 2.2 maybe in your undergrad, right? So here's something you see and you read like a lot of entrepreneurs. Are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary yeah, V? Absolutely, yeah. A self-professed, a horrible student, like barely got out of high school, right? Why do you think some of the best entrepreneurs are very average or even below average students, like say Gary Vee. And you mentioned yourself and you have these thriving businesses. And what makes an entrepreneur not do good in school? And that's not 100%, but there's a there's definitely a subset. Would you agree of entrepreneurs that couldn't do the formal schooling, but man, they go out with their ideas and rock it out? What's your take on that? I think there is some credibility to that statement. And I think it also allows it to support the context. I'll, I'll share a little bit more. See, when you 
don't do well in academics, then you actually have to spend that energy somewhere else. And so it brings a certain level of hustle. It brings a certain level of willing to take failure in your stride. Now, some people do take that and go away and start investing the energy in other things, which is completely not productive for overall thing. But I, I must say that every day I failed that exam, I hated it. it. I never took it on as something as I hated it. I wanted to graduate. I wanted to do well, but I could, just couldn't. And that was like each time taking a punch, falling down, again, standing up and saying, I want to graduate. I, I'm not <laughs> giving up on this big program by any means. Was itself a very strong aspect. And again, the fact is, when you learn to take failure in your stride and you believe that it's just temporary and you will figure it out, whatever it takes, it brings a certain level of tenacity and resilience. And that's what an entrepreneur is all about, right? They, it's, things will not go well. I mean, I can tell you this for sure. When I had the director and the managing director titles at Citrix, everybody was more open to talking to me. When I said I'm an entrepreneur, a lot of people don't want to because actually you start realizing that many people wanted to talk to that Citrix and that director title or the senior director title that I had. And and you realize that and then you just say, that's okay. I'll, you take it in your stride and it is what it is. But I think as an entrepreneur, you, that is one skill that you need to kind of keep taking on because if you believe that you have something valuable to provide to the market, you just need to find the way to get it out there. And that is where that tenacity comes in. Yeah. And and obviously with that, you also learn other skills. You're investing. I'll tell you, there's so many days that I sat down analyzing exam, previous year exam papers, trying to figure out which paper, which question may come in so I can be optimizing myself to kind of study that and go there. Especially when you're trying to write nine papers in, in a single semester was just hard. So the Indian education system is where you write a single final paper and then you write you either graduate or not based on that. I would say those skills are life skills that stay with you. I see a comparison between IQ, which is book smarts, which is like reading an article, reading a book, and regurgitating the information back to the professor to get the A, and the EQ, the emotional intelligence. And in emotional intelligence, I'd put under do you have resilience? Can you take a gut punch and keep going? Do you crumble at the first failure? Do you embrace failure? Like you said, purposely go after failure, failing things quickly and moving on. And then that hustle factor, are you tenacious? A lot of times, not all, but there, there's definitely a group of people that don't have the IQ part, meaning they just can't sit still and regurgitate the information. They want to go out there and try things and fail and create their own thing. And oh, he's a C student and he's not going to have a successful career. And they come out and they start a hundred million dollar company or they start a local company that has 80 employees and they're making 800 grand a year now. I find that fascinating, the disconnect. And also too, I have some friends that teach in medical schools the medical students. They'll say like, is this on the test? They'll go, no, but this will make you a better doctor, a better therapist. And their brain shuts off. If it's not on the test, to regurgitate the A, but like, no, I've been in the clinic for 20 years. This is something that you need to know when this patient walks into your clinic for your treatment. And they don't want to know that. They just want to get an A on the test. So it's like the difference between getting the A, but actually being really good at what you do in the real world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, so let's move on. You worked at PayPal, Citrix for 10 years. Were you around with the mafia? Did you know Peter Thiel or Elon Musk or any of those guys around when you were there? Uh, no, I don't know any of them personally. However, I joined a year after they left. So there was a lot of people that still knew them or were okay. still there with golden handcuffs waiting oh, and doing their time. And so again, I actually would say the amount of PayPal 
when I joined them in 2005, was a company that believed they could do nothing wrong and they could solve every problem okay. in the world. And they there was no big problem at PayPal. And actually, that attitude still stays with me. It's like technology is not a big problem. Today, I think it's become much more conservative. But when I was there, partially because of all these leaders who had come and left, and it was just a fascinating culture. A lot of my ethos still remains from at least the professional side is very much the same as like, you know, how could a company that everyone was betting to fail actually understand Meg Whitman at eBay didn't want PayPal to be acquired. She actually wanted it to go away. Meg Whitman actually had sponsored a project with an eBay to compete with PayPal. But PayPal knew what they were doing. They hustled their way out of this, obviously with all these leaders in there and very smart group of people and they survived. And that attitude kind of still remained when I joined there. And it's fascinating. And I still am a big, I'm a shareholder of PayPal. And now that they have become independent, I strongly believe in that ethos. Wow. What a gift that is to work somewhere and thinking that you can't fail and there's no problem you can't solve. What an unbelievable culture in a company like that. And then to be able to take that out and bring it into other parts of your life. What a gift that is. Tell us about the moment you went in an employee and you said, you know what? It's time to start UX Reactor. You remember that moment where you left an entrepreneur? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I joined Citrix as one of the first hires on this design team. So just to give you a little context to the, the listeners, as technology becomes more and more pervasive, and that's a technology everywhere, we are now wearing technology, at least four or five gadgets around us at any given point, whether it's a laptop, an Apple Watch, or even a smartphone, etc., there's just so much in there. So now each of this technology brings in a certain set of complexity. So there are designers in the world that have to design around these complexity. Like, how do you set it up? How do you engage with it? How do you do what you need to do? How do you kind of work through all of this as an ecosystem? Which is why you have in the technology world, somebody called user experience designers. So that's what we do. So Citrix had a vision to say the IT world, the traditional enterprise software that when you go to a large company and you get this is your software that you work in for doing accounting or doing anything that you're doing in the company needs to be consumerized because the world is getting hyper consumerized. So Citrix decided to build out a full-blown design group in there. So I joined that team. Now, the unfortunate part is I'd spent four years at PayPal, six years at Citrix. We did a lot of good work. My team did a lot of good work. I did a lot of good work. But I don't think I actually changed the trajectory of the company I worked in, both of them. And for me, that was a foundational concern in my own career and my own legacy, which was like, am I making a big enough impact in the organizations that I've touched through the people I'm lead or through myself and so on. And that was foundationally uh, for 10 years, I didn't have much to show except for titles and growth. So my opportunity at that point was like, hey, should I go and lead another design group in some other company? Or shall I lead it the way I believe it should be led? And then I realized to do that, you need your own soldiers, you need your own drills, you need your own army. And, and that's the only way you can win the war of driving insane business value through design. And so then I said, the only way to do that would be trying to experiment it doing my way. So for me, entrepreneurship was always a mindset, which is like, how do you solve a problem? How do you create value in a way that you can exchange value with anyone? But that shift of that day when I said, hey, I don't think I can do this well if I join another company today. I'm not averse to joining any other company, but I, was I ready for it that day? I said, no, I need to go and experiment this. So for me, I call UX Reactor the largest experiment in my life, where trying to see, can I groom the people the way I want to groom them and the process I want them? And can we go into organizations and then change the trajectory of organizations? And fortunately, in the last eight years, 
I have way more to show than the first 10 years of my career. Now, that doesn't mean the first 10 years was a waste. Maybe it was a preparation to kind of get to this point. I actually am very proud of what the me and the team have been able to do at this point. What I find so remarkable is that you took that mindset you had growing up in the military family about having your own soldiers, your own team, your own mindset, your own game plan, your own battle plan back if you were in World War II, and you took the principles of where you started, right? And then you had to pivot two, three, four, five times, but those principles remain the same. You're not in the military, you're not in India, you're in the United States, you're in Silicon Valley, you're in corporate America, and you're in startups, you're in IT, but those principles remain the same and they benefit you and they sped up the process and they were like your guidepost. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. How about right now? They asked you, what change do you seek to make at UX Reactor? You had to boil that down into one sentence. They go, you started this company. Why is this different than every other startup that does the same thing in Silicon Valley? Why is UX Reactor different? People process culture, right? So it's the right people following a very effective process in a really good culture. And when you have this going on well, magic happens, right? There's no too big problem for us. Again, the same ethos that I carried on from PayPal, there's no big or small problem. We all work as a team. We are all drilled in with the same philosophy. Everyone's been groomed from the same way. 99% of our team have all come through the same academy. Whether they are any part of the world, we are located in three continents and that's been the most powerful part. So just the same way as you come in as civilians to any military academy in the world, but you walk out as soldiers at the common mission. And that's the same philosophy that applies at UX Reactor. So we have really good people following really sound process in a great environment. And that's how we make magic for our clients. Yeah. And I think there's one other thing that you've mentioned. It's like an underlying tone of your career and mindset. You're not afraid to fail. Oh, absolutely. Just doing some research on you and speaking to you in the past. Failure comes from you so many ways. Take it in stride. Keep moving forward, right? Absolutely. I think failure is... See, the, the best part is today's generation and today's world allows for failure. And it actually... You just have to fail fast. You just don't have to waste your whole lifetime failing on the same thing. Especially the Silicon Valley allows and appreciates people who have failed and tried doing something. Thing. As long as you're not doing it in an unethical and illegal way, everyone will nurture you and carry you forward. The respect is much different. And by the way, the more blows you have, the better you are well set up to take on the next challenge. I think failure is something not to be scared of. And I still see a lot of friends and acquaintances coming to me and saying, hey, I'm glad that you actually are being able to do this. And I'm like, you could do it too. There's nothing that stops you from doing it. And But that's why I say is the fear of failure is something that is overstated. Here's a couple of things I wrote down doing some research on you. You said today is much more forgiving for entrepreneurs. The cost of experimentation is very low. If it's not working, move on, fail fast. There's a gazillion ways to create value these days. And if somebody has an intent or an idea, you can easily prototype it, go to market with it in an insanely fast manner. I just give you a sense, right? If you're in the technology world, if you were to create uh, eBay today, where you're trying to create an auction platform, which is going to ha handle of transactions every second, you can do that in a few thousand dollars, right? You have the servers available from Amazon. You have the technology code snippets already available on GitHub. You can actually pull that through all together as a prototype really fast. 
which would have cost you millions of dollars if you were doing it for the first time in late 90s or early 2000s. And that's why I say the cost of experimentation has come down so low that if it's just people's own mental capacity and their own willingness to make that happen. And what's the worst that'll happen? You lose a few months, a few quarters, and that's okay. You just take it in your stride and move on. But uh, I saw this again at PayPal, where I was interviewing as a researcher, a lot of people who built business models around PayPal. And you start realizing that there are people who have built million-dollar businesses or multi-million-dollar businesses around small things like charms and collectibles and so on and so forth. It's just that the internet connects everyone, and that was the power that you saw there. And today, as the world is more connected and then as Wi-Fi and bandwidth is so commonly available, I think anyone can do what they want to do if they want to do it. If they want to do it. And even something as, say, there some past guests of the show have been MMA and jiu-jitsu fighters. As we spoke before, has the principles that you built in the military can go out and change countries, change careers, change industries, but they still work. That that, um, that idea of putting yourself out there, being vulnerable to failure, trying new things, failing, learning, adapting, that's how professional fighters train or even recreation jujitsu players. You go on the mat. If you keep doing the same three things, you're just so stagnant. But you're like, hey, I'm going to try this move and you're going to be bad at it. And you're going to fail and you'll learn. And then 12 iterations later, you got that move down and your game is at another level because you had the courage to fail for two, three weeks. You know, and maybe two or three people that maybe normally don't beat you in sparring beat you, but then you got the move down. Then all of a sudden you're at another level than you were. And you just got to put those failures are the cost of admission to getting better, right? Kind of like in your industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, whoever has ever won a video game on the first try? Ever. You're horrible. Yeah. You you play Madden for the first time, you get destroyed. Like you have no idea what you're doing. So true. So true. Hey, wanted to switch gears here a little bit to a point of the interview we call Share Your Secrets. So our listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. Of all the failures that you've had, what failure set you up the most for future success? Looking back, do you have a favorite failure that propelled you forward more than any other? I don't think I have a favorite failure because all of them at that point seemed fairly devastating. But I would say four years of going through my engineering program, because that was a long period which kind of leaves certain scars, was a pretty significant one. And I would say going through that cycle of being the bottom of your class in a school that all cared about. Think about you go to MIT and you're the bottom of your class. And and then suddenly you have a lot of issues around self-worth and etc. I think long story short, I would just say those that probably left a bigger, deeper dent. But heart of hearts, you always know that you're better. But only you know you're better. That's the irony, right? So and how do you keep your confidence still keep you buoyant enough that you can swim to you know a, a much more safer pasture? So I think that kind of leaves that aspect. But again, in hindsight, I always believed I will be successful, but in what I did not know. And then that sheer belief that will happen whenever it'll happen, it's okay. And if the worst comes to worst, I'll still be able to do that. And again, I, I mentioned to you this before. I think I built my tenacity doing door-to-door sales a long time back. And at that point, it just was fascinating because you could have on the same day, as I mentioned to you, I could have somebody who slams the door on, on my face. And the same day, you could have somebody inviting you over 
to your home. So I was selling computer education door to door and t- telling people that, hey, there's get educated, get there's a program. There's a company called AppTech in India, which was giving uh, computer certifications. So I was going door to door and telling people about these certifications. But anyway, so I said the same day you could have somebody slamming the door on you and uh, somebody kind of inviting you over and giving you a cup of tea and then getting you to meet the family and telling them all about what computer education certifications are available and relevant for each one of them. And that just teaches you a certain yeah. sense that if not this door, some other door will and, give you a cup of tea. And it might be like separated by 20 yards with a person that slammed the door in your face and maybe cursed at you. If your hand was in the door, it would have broke how fast they slammed it to the person inviting you in, loving what you have and introducing you to their family and having this like relationship with them where they rebuy and they refer others separated by 20 yards, right? But they're a world away. It's so crazy, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. That's a, the gift of sales. Like it teaches you resiliency, teaches you how to like read the room a little bit, connect, knowing not to speak, questions to ask. It's a life skill. I have very few skills, but I've been in scales for 20 years. You either quit or get decent at it. It's almost like there's some people I know that are great electricians. They're great with plumbing. And like with sales, I think you have a propensity to connect with people. And you have a connection where you can build a culture. If it's a company or a family or a neighborhood, or if you're a coach or a team, you have that ability to create a culture, disseminate it, and raise other people up, right? And I, I think that's the gift of sales. And that door-to-door, nothing teaches sales on how to fail in sales, like door-to-door sales. Like that is horrendous. I did it two years back in the day, and that was so hard. Oh my gosh. But you learn, right? You learn how to sell. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Now, I appreciate you sharing that. How about with all the things you have going on, your family, you're an author, you run a fast-growing startup in Silicon Valley. Satyam, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? Take a hike. Yeah, I, I, I love taking hikes, especially, I'd say, if I... I've been a big fan of mountains in a lot of ways, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to have discovered high altitude mountaineering or trekking as as not mountaineering, it's more uh, less technical. And I've trekked a few altitude summits. I'm planning a couple more, and uh, but it it's multi day. The last one I did was a fifteen and a half thousand feet summit and the Himalayas. Wow. Uh, and was a seven day trek. For me, when I get a need a massive recharge, I think nothing better than being in the mountains with, with no digital you know, tools that are working and hiking with people that really don't give a care, give a shit about, you know, who you are and what you do. Yeah. And, and you just meet people and then you're just talking about life in a very basic sense. And that just clears everything up and you come back either energized or completely, you know, evolved. So cool. What's your next mountain? I'm working on Mount Shasta, which is here in our neighborhood Bay Area, which I believe is a 14,800 feet summit. It's a two to three day summit. So I'm trying to work myself on there. As I wrote the book, I I got less fitter. So I'm now trying to work myself. I I got intellectually stronger, but, you know, physically weaker. But then, but anyway, so I'm I'm working my way through that. And my, one of my dreams is to do the Everest Space Camp track over the next couple of years. Wow, that is awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Touch your base on your writing career. When did you write? Like morning, night? What was your routine? It was the second shift, I call it. Like in the morning time was, you know, running the business or trying to run the business and then go home, get dinner and then come back to, uh, I used to come back to my office and then sit there and then try to write. 
and the keyword is try to yeah. because it it was was not as easy as i assumed it would be i get all the ideas but then i it was not at the right time and when i got the time i didn't have the ideas yeah so again it was a process i learned through again a lot of that but i'm fortunate enough that it was a process that was a few months delayed but it did happen and then it came out well and so far it's been very well taken by who has gotten their hands on it Coffee or no coffee? I know writers either you got to have coffee or they stay away. Where, where you? Where can a lot you of coffee. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. Lot of coffee. <laughs> what's your coffee? You, you, what's your? I I personally am not a big coffee drinker. For me, coffee is caffeine. <laughs> uh, so whatever works, it it works. So I have you know I have most basic instant coffee in the office, and then that's what uh, keeps me fueled. And then there's a few caffeine drinks that you can also drink that gives you a further boost. Your book, User Experience Design, a practical playbook to fuel your business growth by Wiley Press, I believe. That's um, right. If you had to summarize that book in a sentence or two, how would you summarize it? What would you say? I would say that user experience design is a force multiplier, again, giving a military analogy to businesses. And I think most businesses don't understand it. And once they understand it, they can unlock millions, if not billions of dollars of value. Yeah. And the secret to that, again, is if everyone just thinks one step and says, why is it that Apple, the most valuable company, while Samsung makes everything that Apple does and makes more, it makes TVs, washing machines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but still Apple is the most successful company. Why is it that Tesla is the most valuable auto company still, even after the stock has taken a tank, while Every other automaker makes way more vehicles than them. And then you realize it's all about the user experience is understanding the user and building the great experience around them. And that's the difference between the most valuable companies versus none. With Apple, I, I maybe a decade ago, I fell into the Apple camp and you could show me a Chromebook or IBM you could talk to the person on the moon. I don't want it. I want the next MacBook. Like Absolutely. you could show me every feature and you could say it does this, does that. It's a touch screen. I don't care. I want a MacBook. Once that user experience design hits home, like you're so connected to those products like Tesla or Apple and you almost ignore everything else and like, tell me what's next, right? Absolutely. It, such loyalty is built. Now, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. How about Satyam? Most high achievers like yourself have a daily routine, either to start their day or to end their day. They're very routine oriented. What is either the first or last 60 minutes of your day look like? What's your routine? Look like? So my first, uh, again, I, I have had different routines at different times. I would say the most recent routine that I'm following is is finishing the day with just reflecting and have a sense of gratitude. I've been working on, on gratitude a lot more and just kind of re reflecting on how the day has gone and what I'm still thankful for even though there's a lot of things that can feels like they are big and are, are too big. So I think always ending up your day with just thanking for something, starting your day with, you know, saying that what is one thing I would like to achieve today at the minimum. And so time management has been an issue on my end. And so I'm starting to focus more. So like, if there's only one thing I can achieve today, what would that be? And when I end, end my day, it is what am I thankful for that I actually finished or am overall very grateful for today. That's great. There's uh, an author we're going to have on the show this season, Jay Papazan. He is the author of the book called The One Thing and did 3 million copies were sold of this book. And it's exactly what you said. What's the one thing I need to do today that would make everything either better or unessential because I took care of the most important thing. And that defining your one thing and working on it, that is so powerful. As you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? 
I, I call next year the all-in year. And it's a fascinating term to use as a using a poker analogy and a business side. And I'm like, I think the pandemic brought in an element of, say, freeze. Freeze and like, you know, where are we going? Are we going there? Not going there? Shall we go there? As a business, with people, with clients, with everything else. So my point is next year, 2023, I and my leadership team have completely committed on saying we'll go all in. Either we'll go become very successful or we'll fade away. But the fact is being in between and trying to figure out whether shall we, shall we not is not an option. We will go all in. We will try to get the best work. We will get the best team. And if we don't get the best team, we will be ready to shut shop. If we don't get the best clients, we are willing to shut shop. If you're not doing the best quality work, we're going to shut shop. Mm -hmm. But that level of aspects where like failure is okay, but let's make sure that we are doing the best that we can. And let's go and get that knockout punch out there. So next year that I'm really excited about where that is. And more importantly, given that my leadership team and my team is all riled up about going there, there are very few firms that do what we do and do it well. And we are really excited about that. And we just now want to go and pick fights with the big guys. That is awesome. Going all in and picking fights with the big guys. You sound like a jujitsu fighter. That is awesome. That is fantastic. How about this? What advice would you have for maybe that employee working for a company somewhere in Silicon Valley has an idea, basically you a decade or so ago, and just read, like, I want to go out and do something on my own, but maybe I just, I'm a little afraid. I'm afraid to leave my safety net and to go out and maybe I'm afraid to fail. What advice would you have for them? I think the simplest advice is just do it. I think the same advice that I got, which is what am I afraid of? If I lose a couple of years trying to go and do this entrepreneurial thing, then I'll retire a couple of years late. End of story. Yeah. And a lot of people put this thing like, oh, I'm going to lose my my earning potential. I'm going to lose this. The answer is no. I mean, in fact, you will get more earning potential because your perspective improves. But the simple thing is, again, just make sure that you have, there's still a lot you can do on your weekends that you don't need to shift your job. You can still experiment. Now, the point is, if you still want to go hang out on weekends and have party around and stuff, then obviously your priorities are not in the right place and your passion is not in the right place. But if you have the right passion, you absolutely can do it. I think, I don't even know why you're not doing it right now. Wow, that is great. Just do it. What are you afraid of? That's so good. How about There's one you... more one yeah. more quick thing I'll share there is that aspect of relentless urgency. And this I heard urgency, from a okay. mentor. And, and he said, if you can think about it, why didn't you do it already? Yeah. And that was a profound question that always you know, holds me true. Like, if you thought about it, why didn't you do it? And I asked my team the same thing. If you thought about it, why didn't you do it? What were you waiting for? And that relentless urgency, you realize, is just like a few minutes. If you thought of, I should send an email to someone, why didn't you do it? And it's not something that I'm perfect in, but I'm really trying to get myself to that structure. But great advice was, like, if you thought about it, you should already be doing it. If you thought about it, you should already do it. Where's your sense of urgency? And then what are you waiting for? That is excellent. A lot of times it's just fear, right? It's fear of failure. You don't want to step out of line. That's great. How about if you could have everyone listening, Satyam, take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Life is too dynamic. Don't get discouraged by anything that happens in between the journey. And one quote that I also hold true, that if you ever measure yourself halfway through the race, it always seems failure. And as long as we are breathing and we are kicking on this Mother Earth, the race is not done. Wow. As long as we're breathing. You're, you're just a quote machine today. <laughs> as long as we're breathing. What do you say? As long as we're breathing, we're still As long alive. as we are breathing and we are kicking alive on this Mother Earth, the race is not done. The race is not done. Wow. That is fantastic. 
Thank you for that. How about, here's a fun one, Satyam. If you could spend the day with any historical figure, business leader, anyone alive or dead, who would it be? That's a great question. Actually, it's interesting. If I was to pick a person, given our at least the Second World War perspective, I would really like to spend a day with Field Marshal Rommel and just get his sense of all the things that he was getting in his mind as he in his final days, and then learning more from his perspective as one of the biggest. He vanquished a lot of people in the in the Africa campaign, and he did really well. But then in the end, in the Normandy was where he also saw his things. So I, I would say just given the context that we discussed today, I think that would be a great person in history to just spend some time with. He reminds me of there's similarities between him and the Roman philosopher Seneca, where they were so good at what they did, but they served a tyrant. And at the end, the tyrant turned on them who they served for so long and made them kill themselves, basically. Right. right? And then Seneca with Nero and with Rommel with Hitler, like when you serve a tyrant, bad things happen. Usually it's not a good outcome. But now thank you for sharing. That's really good. We started speaking about you're 10, 12 years old in India, sitting around that dinner table with your mom, your dad. If you could go back and talk to the people that were sitting at that dinner table, what would you like to tell them? Great things are in the offering and in the future. That's all I would say. I would just say, you know, just be ready for the ride, all of us. And, and don't take things too seriously. Don't take titles too seriously, positions too seriously. You know, life's just fun and just go with it. Love it. Last question. Satyam, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto be? I used to have this as a youngster. I said that those who walk in others' footsteps leave no footprints. Wow. Those who walk in others' footsteps leave no footprints. That is awesome. I appreciate that. I never heard that saying before. That is fantastic. Where's that from? Do you know? I don't remember. I just had this stuck on my wall consistently. And I, I just remember that. I'm like, and so I, that also brought me into a concept of like, how could I do it differently? What's the legacy? And uh, and that just was fascinating. Actually, as a young kid, I was to always wonder, hey, it looks like every inventor invented everything. Electricity was invented, bulbs were invented. What will I invent? What impact will I make? Only to realize there's just so much, so many problems to be focused on. Satyam, I'd like to thank you for your time. The book is User Experience Design, a practical playbook to fuel business growth by Wiley Press. If people are looking for you and UX Reactor online and your book, where can we find you? You can find me on LinkedIn as a great way to connect. If you want to send me an email, it is satyam at uxreactor.com. Email me and happy to connect with people. I wish you and the audience nothing but the best. Again, thank you for being a great host, Satyam. Satyam, it's been an honor to speak with you. And I wish you and UX Reactor just keep going and keep failing and keep kicking butt. It's exciting to watch you from afar. Keep going. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.